Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we begin to read through the tale Old Sultan and to explore our need to learn to face the inevitable changes of life with creativity and courage. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. In myths and fairy tales, as in dreams, the psyche tells its own story. And the interplay of the archetypes is revealed in its natural setting as formation, transformation, the eternal mind's eternal recreation. In the last couple of episodes, I've spoken a lot about the idea of wisdom, particularly last time in episode 31, Remembering Wisdom. And in that episode, I pointed to the connection between wisdom and the inner life, its relationship to the muses and the creative life, and to Jung's understanding of myth and story as the language of wisdom. And what I want to do over the next couple of episodes is to spend more time directly with story itself, and to let the full sweep of one story be heard and felt. And I'm going to be looking at a fairy tale from the Grimm's collection called Old Sultan. I'll present the first half of the tale together with some of my reflections on it here, and then finish with the second half in the next episode. Now, I've done something like this before in episodes 14, 15, and 16, which I titled Serving the Inner Life, parts 1, 2, and 3. And those looked at the fairy tale, The White Snake. And in the first part of that series, I talked about the reason for and the value of doing an interpretive exploration of fairy tales. And I won't repeat myself here, but if you want some background on the why of fairy tales, you can go back and listen to the opening section of the first episode of that series. Just before we turn to the tale of Old Sultan, however, I just want to say a quick word about how I'm approaching this. It's important to be clear that my reflections on this story do not and cannot represent a definitive interpretation. 
all I can offer is my own encounter with the tale, with the hope that the suggestions that I present provide some resonance for you as a listener and for your own encounter with the tale. An exploration like this should stimulate and open the imagination, not shut it down by draining the story of its value as a story, overpowering it and forcing it to conform to a rigid set of ideas and concepts. So, with that intention and that hope in mind, let's turn to the first part of the Grimm's fairy tale, Old Sultan. A farmer had a faithful dog named Sultan, who had grown old and lost all his teeth and could no longer hold on to anything. One day, the farmer was standing with his wife before the house door and said, Tomorrow I intend to shoot old Sultan. He's no longer of any use. His wife, who felt pity for the faithful animal, answered, He has served us so long and been so faithful that we might well give him his keep. What? said the man. You are not very bright. He doesn't have a tooth left in his mouth, and no thief is afraid of him. He can go now. If he has served us, he has eaten well for it. The poor dog, who was lying stretched out in the sun not far off, heard everything, and was sorry that tomorrow was to be his last day. He had a good friend, the wolf, and he crept out in the evening into the forest to him and complained of the fate that awaited him. Everything changes. This is a truth that we have probably heard many times, so much so that it might strike the ear as an obvious truism. Still, it's a fundamental truth that is expressed by virtually every religious tradition, and it's also reflected in the quote from Jung which started this episode, when he states that the interplay of the archetypes is revealed in its natural setting as formation, transformation, the eternal mind's eternal recreation. And that, that last phrase, formation, transformation, the eternal mind's eternal recreation, comes from Goethe's Faust, and it expresses the mystery of the great flux of life, that everything is in a state of constant and continuous change. And of course, we too are always changing. We are not what we were before, not even from moment to moment. And it's not just the more obvious and visible changes that I'm talking about here. 
a new house, a new job, a new relationship, as important and as significant as these may be. There are changes that take place that are mostly hidden, that happen at some deep tectonic level of the psyche, imperceptible at times even to ourselves. These deep shifts are part of that flowing on and unfolding of life, and a great deal depends on whether we, as we experience ourselves, can change with them. And this is what the story of Old Sultan is all about. In the story, it's the dog, Old Sultan, who has changed. He has grown old and lost all his teeth. But of course, this is not just a story about an old dog. In myths and fairy tales, as in dreams, writes Jung, the psyche tells its own story. The psyche is telling a story about itself. And if that's true, then what we're presented with here needs to be understood as a description of something real that happens. There are things in us that grow old and toothless, and we need to learn to recognize them and how to come into harmony with them. The story describes an inevitable and natural process, something that we will all encounter in our lives. It's imperative that we know how to align with this process, or else we will find ourselves at cross-purposes with our own psychological functioning. And more than that, if we cannot get into alignment with the process of psychological change, we are in danger of doing violence to the deep structures guiding this process. Tomorrow, says the farmer, I intend to shoot old Sultan. He is no longer of any use. Now, the farmer and the dog go together, right? Symbolically speaking, we could say that the dog represents an instinctual aspect of the farmer. And this instinct, which we could also call a particular orientation to life, has changed. But the farmer can't think of how to be in relationship with this changed instinct, with this old dog, apart from the way that he has always known. That is, seeing his dog as a faithful servant who must earn his food. In other words, the farmer's attitude is the instrumentally rational kind that we spoke about in episode 30, knowing and not knowing. He can only relate to the utility value of the dog. So what does it mean that an instinct has changed? 
Well, the story uses the symbolic language of aging, partly because it's in the experience of aging that we can see in bold relief, so to speak, the stark effects of change in our lives. And in fact, one of Jung's best works on the necessity of recognizing and meeting life's changes is in an essay called The Stages of Life, in which he emphasizes the divide between the first half and the second half of life. But I think it would be a mistake to limit our understanding of this aging to a literal reading of getting old. We are constantly outgrowing our current relationship to life. As Jung asserts, the afternoon of life must also have a significance of its own and cannot be merely a pitiful appendage to life's morning. And this is something that applies to many situations, to the youth who struggles with leaving behind the carefree days of early adulthood when the drive to settle down starts to be felt. It applies to the person facing retirement who is so identified with their role and position that they feel anxious or depressed at the prospect of giving it up. It applies to the stay-at-home parent who suddenly is facing an empty nest and who doesn't know how to relate to themselves anymore. And on and on. Something has shifted in the farmer. And what that is will be revealed in the next section of the story. But before going on, I don't want to neglect the figure of the wife. Because she is the one who sees what needs to happen. She is the one who recognizes that a new attitude is needed. Not instrumentally rational, but relational. He has served us so long, she says, and been so faithful that we might well give him his keep. The farmer's dismissive response, you are not very bright, suggests that the core problem of this story is the need for developing an adequate and effective connection with what has traditionally been understood as the feminine principle, right? And this, to be clear, is not just a problem that involves men, but it's one that implicates the whole of the masculine spirit that dominates our culture, as expressed by Abraham Joshua Heschel when he writes, in our technological age, Man could not conceive of this world as anything but material for his own fulfillment. This is the farmer's attitude to old Sultan. And it will get an abrupt adjustment in the next part of the story. So here it is. 
Listen, kinsman, said the wolf. Be of good cheer. I will help you out of your trouble. I have thought of something. Tomorrow, early in the morning, your master is going with his wife to make hay, and they will take their little child with them, for no one will be left behind in the house. While they are at work, they lay the child behind the hedge in the shade. You lie down there, too, just as if you wanted to guard it. Then I will come out of the woods and carry off the child. You must run swiftly after me as if you would take it away from me. I will let it fall, and you will take it back to its parents, who will think that you have rescued it and will be far too grateful to do you any harm. On the contrary, you will be treated royally, and they will never let you want for anything again. This idea pleased the dog, and it was carried out just as planned. The father screamed when he saw the wolf running across the field with his child, but when old Sultan brought it back, he was full of joy and stroked him and said, not a hair of yours shall be hurt. You shall eat free bread as long as you live. And to his wife he said, Go home at once and make old Sultan some bread soup that he will not have to bite. And bring the pillow from my bed. I will give it to him to lie on. From then on, old Sultan was as well off as he could possibly wish. The toothless instinct is one, we could say, that has become directed to the interior life. Something like ambition or achievement is no longer simply an outwardly directed energy something rushing out into the world to sink its teeth into a variety of opportunities or accomplishments. It's no longer on the prowl, no longer on the hunt. It has turned inward, not to achievement, but to appreciation, not to attainment, but to reflection, not to acquisition, but to creation. In this section of the story, we see the dog and the wolf conspire to play a trick on the farmer. And here we get a sense that the farmer's conflict is between his toothless dog, the instinct turned inward, and the wild wolf, the more familiar, aggressive, and ravenous expression of the instinct. And one way we might understand the appearance of the wolf here is as an image of an attempt to resolve the problem of the new attitude through returning to an old way of being. When confronted with something new and unfamiliar and disorienting, something that we don't know how to relate to, we'll often try to go back to what we know. 
But when we fall prey to this temptation, some vital aspect of life is endangered. And this is represented in the story as the threat to the baby, an image of fragile new life and new potential. And at this point in the story, something interesting happens. The farmer gains a new identity. He's no longer called farmer, but father. The father screamed when he saw the wolf running across the field with his child. In other words, when the farmer becomes aware that the baby, this new potential, could be lost, the relational side of his instinct wakes up, so to speak. And according to Jung, if we don't find a way to live into our new potentiality, a kind of deadening takes place. And using the example of a man approaching the second half of life, he writes this. He says, A young man who does not fight and conquer has missed the best part of his youth. And an old man who does not know how to listen to the secrets of the brooks as they tumble down from the peaks to the valleys makes no sense. He is a spiritual mummy who is nothing but a rigid relic of the past. He stands apart from life, mechanically repeating himself to the last triviality. The loss of the child, of this new life potential, is a catastrophe. That it is presented as a trick that's put on by the dog and the wolf suggests the possibility that at such moments of change, life has a way of arranging things in order to wake us up. And this is the takeaway here. Because many do not wake up. And instead, they become that spiritual mummy that Jung describes. And the good news here is that the farmer does listen, right? And a, a new relation to life is forged. And in a way, he's reconciled to his wife, to the feminine principle as well. He takes up the solution that she had offered earlier. And even goes further, he gives old Sultan his pillow to sleep on. That is, he treats the dog royally, as the wolf had predicted. And with this development, we discover that the secret of this story is revealed in the dog's name. He is Sultan, which, of course, means sovereign or king. But it means more than that. The word sultan, taken from the Muslim tradition, has a religious connotation to it. And so we make a right relationship to the changes in our lives by recognizing that in working with them, 
we are participating in the divine processes of life. And speaking of the symbol of animals in dreams and fairy tales, the Jungian analyst Marie-Louise von Franz said this, The only thing to do is to accept the animal as a divine and secret mystery. A divine secret. If this attitude is lacking, if there is an attempt to draw the divine into the human realm, there can only be catastrophe. And this is true, even if the divine animal is an old and toothless dog. We've only begun to touch on this divine dimension of the animal symbol. And we've not seen the last of the wolf, either. He will return in the second half of the story. And his confrontation with Old Sultan and the resolution of this story will be the focus of the next episode. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.